Well, good morning again. Uh, We are in a series of sermons on the gospel writer Matthew's story of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem uh, at perhaps the height of Jesus' fame, at maybe the height of his popular support. He told his disciples that he was headed to Jerusalem to suffer and eventually to die. And it is that moment, the moment that he told his disciples that, that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at that and its immediate aftermath. This sets Jesus on a road that leads to him dying alone. And it is at the same time the road that leads to life for you and for me and for the world. So I'm going to read from Matthew 16 for us, verses 21 through 28. It's the end of Matthew 16. You can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just sang uh, those words together where we said that every heart is open to you. <laughs> and, and we uh, acknowledge that that's true, whether we want it to be true or not. You, you see us and you know us. And we ask, Father, that um, this would be a comfort to us this morning because we know it is also true that you can meet us in all of the places that we find ourselves in whatever states we are in this morning. So, Father, we ask that you would do that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would meet us, that you would come and fill our open hearts with the love of Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the other day, uh, someone asked me if they could borrow my car. Uh, I usually don't hesitate about stuff like that. I mean, uh, if I'm not using it, sure, you can use it. Uh, But when I got asked this time, I paused for a second, not because I didn't want to share, but because I wanted to consider seeing my car through someone else's eyes. Um, I have mentioned my car before. It's, It's 20 years old now. And it still goes, and I'm very uh, fond of it. But there's some stuff about it, you know. It's out of alignment. 
Uh, I have to pour steering fluid and oil into it on the regular. Uh, one of the back doors stopped opening from the outside a couple months ago. There's a rearview mirror that hasn't worked for more than 10 years. It's kind of just the tip of the iceberg, to be honest, about my car. And so I know that when I explain that, there's lots of people that that would drive batty. There's probably lots of you uh, that that would drive batty, um, but it really doesn't bother me. I kind of like keeping an old car going. It makes me feel like I'm getting something over on someone. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I don't really know who that person is that I'm getting something over on, but it makes me feel that. So you know how it goes. When I look at my car, I mean, I just see my car. It's like there's a filter in front of me that blocks out all of the messed up stuff about it. So when I was asked to borrow it this week, I had to stop for a moment, and I had to acknowledge that my filter is not real. <laughs> I can't just ignore the stuff that I want to ignore. We all uh, experience that in our lives, I think. We all uh, have a tendency to see the stuff that we want to see and look past the stuff that we don't want to see. Humans, I think, have been doing that forever. Sometimes we call that confirmation bias, interpreting things and seeing things in ways that affirm what we want to believe. And it can be deeply, deeply unsettling when those biases are challenged. Well, that is precisely the crisis that Peter finds himself in in that story that we just read together. It is precisely that place that he is in. Peter has just stepped up for all of the disciples and he's told Jesus, hey, we know who you really are. We know that you're the Messiah. You're not just a king. We know you are the king. We talked about that last week. And then Jesus commends him deeply and highly for it. He says, you're the rock, Peter, and on you I am going to build my church. I mean, these are really, really heady times for Peter. These are good, good times for Peter. I mean, one minute he's a fisherman from Galilee. The next minute he is at the head of this movement that the Messiah is starting. But then Jesus starts to talk about suffering. And then he starts to talk about dying. And that church, that was not something that Peter wanted to see. That did not fit into his story of the world. It did not fit into the story of his own life. It certainly did not fit into the story of what he imagined Messiah's life would be like. And so he starts to come unglued. And Jesus' response to Peter is a great grace because it removes the filters from in front of Peter's eyes. And that is the beginning of the slow process of unglued Peter being put back together again. And as is often the case, church, Peter's place in the story is your place and mine, too. We're right there with him. And so the question is, will we hear from Jesus not just what we want to hear, but what he really says? Will we see what we want to see, 
or will we see what is true? So Matthew begins this story with that little phrase, from that time. That's this Matthew's way of drawing a straight line between Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah and then what Jesus begins to teach. It's almost as if Matthew wants us to think of Peter's confession as the trigger. It is the event that begins this teaching that Jesus begins to say. And of course, it's nothing like what they expected at all. I mean, after they tell him, we know who you are, the next logical thing in their minds is that they would sit down and begin to plan the revolution. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what the Messiah is supposed to do. They're going to march their way over to Jerusalem, and they're going to pick up supporters along the way, and then when they get there, they're going to, through Jesus' help and power, they're somehow going to overthrow the religious establishment that's corrupt in the temple. They're going to take the temple over again, and then somehow, maybe, maybe the, with the help of the zealots, they will overthrow Rome, and then Jesus will take his seat on the throne and rule over them in peace. That's what's supposed to happen, but instead, <laughs> but instead from that time, Jesus began to tell his disciples to show them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and be killed and on the third day be raised. So yes, guys, we're going to go to Jerusalem, but nothing else that you imagine will happen. What happens when we get to Jerusalem will be nothing like you dreamed. And like I said, this doesn't fit into their story of the world. It's, it doesn't fit into their story of who Jesus is and what Jesus should be doing. I mean, he's not supposed to go to Jerusalem to lose. He's supposed to go to Jerusalem to win. He's supposed to go to Jerusalem to put down his enemies, not to be put down by them. And Jesus isn't just saying, well, you know, this is a possibility. This could happen if things go a certain way. Jesus is saying to them, it is necessary that this happens. There, there is no plan B. This is the plan. This is it. What happens in Jerusalem during the final week of Jesus' life is not the result of things, you know, spinning out of control and Jesus getting in over his head and not knowing what else to do or where else to go. This is where he is headed in complete control. Now, he doesn't say why it's necessary right here, but we know. We know why it's necessary. And it's probably good for us to take a moment and remember that this is necessary because of love. It's necessary because of love. Because this is what God does. When the ones that he has made to be perfectly happy and fulfilled in him run away and try to find fulfillment and happiness in all kinds of other things. Because this is what God does when the ones he created to be in his image turn away from him and in their turning take the rest of creation down with them. Because even, even with our fists shaking in his face, 
even with our hands covered with the stains of trying to find meaning and significance in everything but him, even with curses in our mouths, God looks at us with deep love. And that deep love causes him to act. And he steps in and takes our place. He takes our mess and our sin and our rebellion and he gives us forgiveness and healing and peace. It was necessary because God loves people like us. Later on in Matthew's story, Jesus will say it like this, The Son of Man came to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. By his wounds, we heard in the Old Testament lesson, by his wounds, we are healed. Church, this is the good news. This, this is the gospel. And it's good for us to remember that the cross of Jesus towers over history and it towers at the very center of our faith. If you and I are going to know Jesus at all, we are always going to know him like this. The one who in love went to the cross for us. But Peter, on that moment, in that moment, on that road to Jerusalem, the rest of the disciples in that moment on the road to Jerusalem, they hear this stuff and it sounds to them like madness. It sounds to them like foolishness. It sounds to them like the height of absurdity. And, and church, here is the truth that I hope every single one of us in here, no matter who we are, I hope every one of us in here can come to confess, if we have not confessed it already, that this is either madness or love. It is either madness or love. There is no in-between. But Peter cannot see the love. He can only see the madness. His filter is up. He is only looking for what he wants to look for. And he wants Jesus to see it his way too. And so he takes Jesus aside to rebuke him. No way, Jesus. This will never happen to you. Of course, it's impossible for us to know exactly what Peter's motive was in that moment. I'm sure that it was mixed. Of course it was. On the one hand, he's worried about himself and he's concerned about himself. I mean, if things go according to his plan, it works out pretty good for everybody, including Peter. But if... If, if things go according to Jesus' plan, then, then Peter maybe has some deep concern for Jesus. But no matter what his motive was, Jesus makes it very clear what he's doing, even if he never dreamed that that's what he was doing. So Jesus says to Peter, the rock upon whom he will build his church, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me because you don't have your mind set on the things of God. You have them set on the things of man. So what does Jesus mean to say to Peter 
in that moment. What is Jesus saying? Well, back in Matthew 4, Matthew tells us the story of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. And I'll just say, as an aside, that that first part of Matthew 4 is a great text to read, to meditate through, to pray through during the season of Lent. In the final one of those temptations that Jesus faces, the accuser takes Jesus to this high place and he shows him all of the kingdoms of the world. And he says to Jesus, you can have all of this. This is all for you if you would bow and worship me now. In other words, he was tempting Jesus to come into his kingdom without suffering and without a cross. And even then, Jesus knows that is not how he will come into his kingdom. He knows even then that the cross is the plan. And so with authority, he tells Satan to be gone and he goes. And this is what's happening here with Peter. I think this is why Jesus calls him Satan. Because Peter wants Jesus to come into his kingdom without any suffering. He wants Jesus to come into his kingdom without any cross. But instead of telling Peter to be gone, Jesus is all of grace with him. He says, get behind me. In other words, Peter, Peter, get back to the place where you're following me because I'm the one in front of you on this road. I'm the one who goes out in front of you, Peter. I'm, I'm the one who takes your place. It's not the other way around. And of course, if Peter won't do this, if he won't go back to being a follower of Jesus, then that rock will become a stumbling block because his fundamental orientation to the world is all out of whack. His mind is set in this moment only on what he can see at the end of his nose. He can't see the bigger story. He can't see the true story of the world. And this is the way Jesus puts it. Your mind is set on the things of men, not on the things of God. And I hope that we can see that this is a great, great grace to Peter. He is not being rejected. He is being told the truth. <laughs> Jesus will not confirm Peter's bias he wants to give him an entirely new bias, one that will lead him to his good and to his flourishing forever. And church, this is always how Jesus comes to people like us. It's how he comes to you and me. His disruption in our lives is for our good always. And we can trust him. Of course, the disruption, it wasn't just for Peter that day. It was for all of the disciples, anyone who follows Jesus then and now. That's why in verse 24, Jesus begins to say, If anyone, if anybody wants to come after me, let him deny himself, 
and pick up his cross and follow me. Jesus wants us to know that to follow him is to go where he goes, and that means first a call to self-denial. Now, I know that there's a way to hear that, a call to self-denial, and to imagine that maybe what Jesus is asking is for us to be less selfish. And selflessness is definitely a virtue, but that is not what Jesus is talking about here. And, and throughout the many centuries uh, since Jesus has said this, lots of Christians have imagined that Jesus' call to self-denial is perhaps a call to give something up, maybe for a time, like food or money or something. And, and those things are good in their proper places and, and to their proper ends, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. I think that Jesus is talking about us being loosed from the thing that he wanted Peter to be loosed from. And that is a life that is ordered around the things of man. I mean, in Peter's eyes right there that day, it meant a a triumphalist view of life where he dreamed that everything would be good and smooth and, and peaceful for him. Maybe that's true for some of us this morning. Maybe that's what we dream of for life and we think that's the way it should go. But the essence of Jesus' call to self-denial is a call to us stop trying to be God. It is a call for us to stop trying to be God. This is the oldest of the sins, the ancient one, out of which all of the other sins flow. This is what our first parents did. They imagined that they knew better than God how life should work and how their own lives should go. And so they played God. And here we are, living in a world that's broken as people who are fallen. And that's what Peter did. He thought he knew better than Jesus, how Jesus' life should go and how his life as a part of Jesus' life should go. And so he tried to turn things in the direction that he wanted. And so Jesus' call to self-denial to you and to me is a a call to reorient our lives, to reorient our loves, to reorient our values away from trying to play God and towards letting him be God. It's a reorientation away from the things of man, which is always just at the end of our nose and short-sighted and myopic, and towards the things of God, which is the life, really, that you and I have been made for in the first place. It's the life that leads to our good. It's the life that leads to the good of this world. So if self-denial is that interior orientation of our hearts, then the second part of what Jesus said taking up our cross is about what that actually looks like in flesh and blood. It's about what people see of our lives and therefore what it might cost us. This has always looked different for God's people depending on where they find themselves and when they find themselves. You know, you know that there are places in the world where taking up a cross looks very much like it did for Jesus and for Peter and the rest of the disciples. You know that there are places in the world where naming yourself as a Christian could get you killed. 
I recently got together with friends who live in a place like that, folks who, for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of people just being able to meet Jesus and know him, live in a place like that, and therefore with constant threat and danger. This is not where most of us find ourselves, but there is, church, there is a cost for anyone who takes up their cross and lives with a fundamentally God-directed orientation. And here's why. Because people who follow Jesus are people who are being changed. It means that we're being changed into people who become more concerned about others than we are concerned about ourselves. We begin to see people, we begin to see others as those to serve and care for instead of seeing people as those who are there to serve me and to fulfill me and to grant my needs. We start seeing our neighborhoods. We start seeing the city not as a place for me to chew up and consume for my entertainment and fun and good. We start seeing the city and the neighborhoods that we live in as places that we are here to serve and to make better. We stop seeing our money and our possessions and our stuff as things that are to be hoarded for my good, for my betterment, but as things that we have been given to give away for the good of the world and the glory of God. People who follow Jesus are are people who are being changed to people who, when they see injustice, when they see oppression in the world, they stop seeing it as social media talking points for whatever pet ideology they have and start seeing them as deep wounds in the world. Deep wounds that perhaps God would be happy to use us to begin mending in the real world. So people that live like this, if you'll let me say it, they're odd people. Living like this is its not exactly our culture's picture of the good life. It is not. It is an orientation that is out of step. And church, it is at all times, at all times, deeply, deeply threatening to the status quo. If you live even a little like this, then you know it is a threatening way to live to the status quo. And then it will often cause suffering that we would not otherwise get. As John Calvin says, it's suffering in addition to the troubles that are common to all people. And church, to take up our cross is to accept that. It's to accept it for the good of the world like Jesus did before us. And here's the thing, Jesus says that when we live like this, it is attached to a promise. There is this promise that comes with living this way. That's what those questions are in verses 25 and 26. That's why Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I mean, of course Jesus knows that to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to live in those kind of ways will feel like loss. But he's saying it is a temporary fleeting loss. And in the way that the good news turns everything on its head, it is the way that actually leads to life. 
certainly the kind of life that we have been made for now. I mean, people who live in the ways that we just talked about, they're precisely, precisely the kind of people that this broken, hurting world needs. And when we live that way, we get a sense of God's pleasure with us. We, we get a sense when we live that way of the overwhelming joy and happiness of simply living life because we were made for it. I hope every one of us in here have tasted that at least at one point in our lives. Jesus is not just talking about life in the present, though. This promise is also about the future. That's what he means by that probing question, what will it profit someone to gain the whole world and lose their life? That's what he means when he says that he will come with his angels in the glory of the Father to repay every person according to what they've done. I mean, there is a note of judgment in that for sure, but the emphasis falls on reward. There is life at the end of that road and blessing and peace at the end of that road. And so... (laughs) Old Peter, (laughs) old Peter at the back end of his life, he appears to have understood this. And so that's why he could write those words to his friends that we heard in the New Testament lesson. (laughs) This is what Peter wrote to his friends. Peter, who had been called Satan. (laughs) Peter, who had been told, get behind me and follow me. This is what Peter wrote to his friends. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so it is a comfort to me that Peter who no doubt felt so stung that day, so dejected and so lost. It is a comfort to me that Peter was able to eventually see, and I mean not see what he wanted to see, not to see the confirmation of his bias, but the deconstruction of his bias. He saw by Jesus' great disrupting grace to him what was true. And that means there's hope for me, and there's hope for you, there's hope for people like us, and it is found in the same disrupting, reorienting grace of Jesus. Will we let him deconstruct our bias? Will will we let him give us a new story and a new song? Will we listen when he speaks? Let me pray for us. Father, as we've already prayed, our our hearts are open to you, and so it's no use for any of us trying to pretend that we aren't just like Peter, that if we could write the script, we would write a script that leads to our good and no suffering whatsoever, no trouble whatsoever. So, Father, we ask that you would do to us by your grace, what you did to Peter, and that is deconstruct his bias and give him a new story, the true story of the world. 
that we would be courageous to follow you where you go. Father, we ask that you would do this for our good, that you would do this so that in love we can reach out to the broken world around us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.